When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X.com. Now the mic is on. There it is. I was, you heard nothing that I just said. It was fantastic, by the way. Some of my best work, you didn't even get to hear it. That's a shame. But now you can hear me. So I'll try and replicate the genius that I just said a second ago. We're talking about the singles title matches, the history. We've had 20 of them now. And number 20 was this past Saturday in New York, Paul Oyama, Jeff Snyder. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. Not right now. We'll save that when it's released to the public on the rundown. So you can hear that Saturday. But I am going to talk about the other previous 19 matches and a lot of them have to deal with Dan Merle and then there's you have Sam Levine you have uh, other players like Christian Harloff John Roca how about the very first guy Mark Riley in 2014 then you have other challengers like Rachel Cushing Clark Wolf JTE remember he was actually the first guy challenge for the title so and that match didn't go that great for him even though it was a different time in the league didn't go that great and he had a he had a pretty good run in that inaugural 2014 season the infamous mark uh mark ellis perfect game that wasn't i actually talked about all the tournament runs on the very first cheat sheet, which ran really, really long. So I'm going to try and make this one actually shorter because the last week was like an hour and a half uh, talking about Rachel Cushing and Clark Wolf, their their history, uh, all their matches, singles teams, and inner geekdom for Rachel. But this week, like I said, just talking about the singles title matches, I figured um, it was a good topic to cover because we just had the 20th one, like I said. So... Let's get into probably the, I would say, the most accurate title match of all time. And it didn't happen, well, previously, it was Dan Merle, of course, versus Sam Levine. Now, that match was the cash-in for Sam Levine. He cashed in there. He had won the free-for-all. He cashed in there at Collision. This is right after Dan Merle just took down John Roca and the then champion 
Mark Riley, who was defending in a triple threat. You got to remember, some people said that John Roca weaseled his way into it because he had lost it to Riley, and he felt like he needed another shot at it or deserved one. And then here comes, you know, Dan Merle. And so it became a triple threat. Merle takes down Riley. He TKO's Riley. Riley did not have a great match. Roka had a decent match. Now, some of you may remember there's an infamous situation uh, with that match. I do believe it was the uh, Calvin Klein incident. Uh, go back. It's a part two of collision for that triple threat. The very first triple threat title match. And remains to date the only one they've ever done like that. Which makes it pretty pretty unique, right? And it was unique for multiple reasons. I know I said I was going to talk about Merle Levine, but i got to talk about this triple threat. Um, it's a unique one because at that time, the belt was exchanging hands between Roka, Riley, and Merle. And this was going to kind of put an end to that to that trio because I forget what the stipulation was. I think Roka had to win like three in a row to get another title shot or something. And there's all the kinds of stipulations I didn't really brush up on. But it was supposed to break that cycle. None of them were going to have you know an automatic rematch or anything like that. But Merle ends up putting up one of the best single match games uh, of all time. He answered about 89% of his questions. TKOing Mark Riley, edging out John Roke in the process. You know, he scored 26 points in that match. And at that time, that was the most points ever scored, uh, period, in, in most specifically a title match. And then Sam Levine comes out during the middle of uh, Dan Merle's interview with Grace Hancock, who at the time still wasn't, who wasn't a heel per se at the time. She's kind of, I think maybe she was a little bit at that time. But regardless, Sam Levine comes out, challenges Dan Merle, and we cut back to Grace and Dan. Grace relays the message to Dan, and Dan says, you know, one second, and he storms off, and he comes right back out of those curtains, and he storms around to the other side of the table, and he sits down and says, let's do this. And then Sam Levine, who, pro- who proceeded to play a pretty good game, Dan Merle went out there and missed, like, one question. He had an accuracy rate of 95%. And put up 26 points. Again, now i got to bring up this match, because I think between both matches, a triple threat and the one he played with Levine, I think he only missed three questions. It's something really ridiculous. Uh, against against Levine here, he missed one question. And then in the triple threat, he missed, let me see here, two questions. And he had 19 in that one. He had 21 against uh, Sam Levine. So do the math. It's 40 questions. And he got nearly missed three that's that's pretty crazy. That's a hell of a run. I don't think anyone will ever have that kind of back-to-back matches on the same day. You even heard Dan Merle talk about it earlier this year. Why would he give someone like, you know, whoever had the belt, the singles belt, and they defended, why would he go ahead and immediately challenge them to possibly replicate what he did in 2017? So, And I also don't think, I don't know if we'll ever see that kind of situation um, it takes a it takes a lot, especially on a one of their I guess pay per view events. You know, we're already playing five, maybe six matches to add a, another one. That makes it for a lot longer day. It's a five round match. But getting into this number one all time because for the longest time that match in 2017, we went through all of 2018, and the mess the best match we saw out of that year. Uh, that's the best title match of the year, was the Sam Levine-Rachel Cushing match. They combined to answer uh, here uh, 85% of the questions collectively. Even though Rachel was TKO'd mathematically, she still answered 81% of her questions. Sam answered 89 Up to through 2018, that was the best match, 
title match that came out of that year still didn't top the Damrell Sam Levine match, which says a lot about Sam Levine in title matches, you know. So he was in two the top two best title matches statistically, statistically of uh up to that point. We went through all of 2018, nothing touches it. We get to 2019, and to start off 2019 is Dan Morell, Ethan Irwin, and I think you wouldn't even have to look at a stat sheet to figure out that this was the most accurate match of all time. Dan Morell didn't miss a question, right? He was the first player in singles title match history to pitch... Uh, a perfect, accurate game. Not a perfect, perfect game, but a perfect, accurate game. And had it not been for the one multiple choice question, uh, the one time he went to multiple choice in that second round, he would have had the very first absolute perfect, perfect game in Schmodown history. Aside, and it's hard to say because I go, I wrestle. With this one, with uh, Mark Ellis one in 2014. Now, it's not anywhere near the version of the game that we play today. Completely different in 2014. But Mark Ellis did not miss a question. He didn't go to multiple choice in, in that match against JTE. He didn't bet enough points to beat JTE, but he got the question right in that betting round. So I kind of put it off to the size with like an asterisk. But up through the Collider era and until now, no one has ever done a perfect, perfect game. And Dan Merrill got very close, in fact, one question, right, away. Um, and I think when we get into, when we talk about perfect, perfect matches, there's a perfect match. I think there's levels to a perfect match when you get to title matches because you have round three and round four, betting speed round. Now, Dan Merrill, he only bet two points, but he didn't bet the full maximum three that you're allowed. Now, I myself would not hold that against him, but if somebody else were to have a perfect, perfect match, and let's say in that that betting round they bet three, I'm going to have to say that other person's match, perfect match, is slightly better than Dan Merle's because they they bet the three. Like, let's assume everything else is the same but that. That's where I would start to, to, to rank perfect, perfect games, which is a problem we haven't had yet, unfortunately. Because I, I would, well, I don't know if it's unfortunately, it just it is what it is. Even in the speed round for Damrell against Ethan Irwin, he went three of, I'm sorry, two for two. Didn't get all five, didn't run the table. Again, you would have to start ranking them according to how many they answered in the speed round, how many points they wagered and earned in the betting round. But we don't have that problem, so Dan Merle, that match remains to be 100% accurate at the least, not perfect perfect. Dan Merle was 18 of 18 in that match. Ethan Irwin missed three I'm sorry, three questions. He missed three questions. He missed his final he missed his final two questions. And he missed one in the first round. He trailed seven to nine. And going into let's see, rounds. Uh, going into that last round, Ethan Herman was up by one point, twenty one to twenty. So it's it's insane to think that a player who did not miss a question the entire match was still trailing by a point going into that championship round, the fifth round, only because he checked a multiple choice one time in the second round. And then Ethan Irwin was able to break that that tie, if you will, uh, by answering one more question in the speed round. One's three for three, Damarell two for two. So that remains the very uh, epitome of most accurate title match. And then it happened in New York. It happened in New York, the season opener. Uh, it was the headlining match of the event. It wasn't the first match, but it was the headlining match of this year's season. And it is the best of all time statistically when you look at 
the winning PPE percentage, and like that's really getting into the weeds. That's what I try to do here on the cheat sheet. Dan Merrill answered 96 or earned 96% of his questions or points rather. Ethan Irwin earned 72%, still lost the match. When you look at 72% of points earned, he actually would have beaten 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 other people that won their title match, right? His losing accuracy rate is the highest losing accuracy rate of all time. It's 84.21%. That's ahead of Rachel Cushing's 8125 as well as Mark Ellis. He actually had the same accuracy rate against Dan Merle, which is another sneaky, very sneaky good title match that we don't talk about because it happened way back in 2016. The league has changed, all of that, and Mark doesn't play anymore. That's another very good sneaky match. And those are the only three players to have an accuracy rate above 80% and lose the match, lose the title match. When you look at anybody else who scored 80 and above, or 80 and below, you got 1, 2, 3, 4, 10 other players below that threshold, which those three other players would have beaten. It's really crazy when, when you look at these top matches and that they just run into someone on a crazy good run or a buzzsaw like Dan Merle who goes 100%. It's really fascinating to see that while playing at perhaps their highest level ever, maybe they're having their best game ever and it's happening in a title match, they still lost because they came up against, frankly, Dan Merle. Dan Merle has the top three uh, winning accuracy rates is 100% against Ethan Irwin. The second is his match against Sam Levine when he answered 95. Dan Merle has the third one with 94% against Mark Ellis. So scratch that. He actually has the top four <laughs> because the fourth one is in the triple threat match he got. He answered 89%, close to 85%. So he has the top four most accurate matches in singles title history. And he's played in about, and he's played in nine title matches, defended six, I think that's right, six or five. So, let's see that number here. I think he's defended five times. So, it, it's it's an incredible run. So when you look at Dan Merle, and I understand the argument for greatest of all time, you have to look at what he did statistically, to go along with the fact that he did defend so many times, because I think that only helps his case. Because you have other players, like Rachel Cushing, who's who's played in all three divisions, and have and she's the only player to compete for a title in all three, literally play a title match in all three divisions. Damarell hasn't done that in teams yet. So, and then you have other players like Mike Kalinowski, who's just now double-belted. You have Sam Levine, who's also double-belted, and, and they've you know, done it in two leagues. They've they've gone to the pinnacle in those two different divisions. Dan Merle hasn't, but when you look at how dominant he was in his singles title matches, he has again the top four accuracy rates in title history. Singles title singles division title history. So that so that means a whole lot when you're starting to compare him to players like Sam Levine, who I know a lot of people also regard as the GOAT because he had won two belts. The, he dethroned the Patriots, and that obviously a check mark on his resume for grace of all time. But I think it's it's a interesting conversation. It's an interesting. Uh, he's got a, Dan Merle has quite a lot on his resume just from one division because that's where he's made practically his entire legend, if you will, comes from the singles division. And teams hasn't really panned out. All that much and he also hasn't really been involved all that much all right let's see here i'm gonna go to uh look at the chat here and see some people in here thanks for watching let's see here cory not of course would ask just one ridiculous question one true statement the rosario does one yes uh and weak points when it comes to start okay that's a great callback there cory 
when it comes weak points when it comes to Star Wars trivia. I tell you what, it's I'll tell you when you're older. If someone has a challenge, it's truly a perfect game if the ruling is reversed. Oh, that's a good question, Corey. If someone has a challenge, it's a truly perfect game if the ruling is reversed against them. That's a good that's an interesting So I think let's say in the match against Ethan Irwin. He Ethan Irwin, are you saying like if someone challenges if Ethan Irwin challenged like an answer that Dan Merrill gave, they reversed the ruling. But then he would have to ask another question and get it right. So I guess no. But let's say if he challenged, let's say a question from Ethan Irwin, see nothing really that it's all about answering the questions and earning the points. So I don't think you really could get into that kind of situation. Corey Knott also again here says. Does Bibbs have a better facial hair game than you? Does Bibbs have facial hair? I don't know. Oh, James Spence is here. That's great. I feel like the nine. <laughs> okay. Paris. I don't know. Uh, hmm. I think I'm just ignoring you. No, I'm not. I'm just not looking at the chat because I was, I was talking. All right. Okay. So Corey says it's like a walk in baseball and they win or lose either way. Um. But I want to get to some of my, my personal favorite title matches, ones that I just really loved watching. Um, but one that's actually more sentimental, and I think it's sentimental for a lot of people, is when John Roca did the impossible and dethroned Dan Merle. Now, that that match is an interesting one because while it's one of the best moments that winning it's one of the best winning moments we've ever had i think it's up there with who's the boss and shire wolves that's spectacular i think rachel also beating mike in that overtime i think mike beating rachel <laughs> in san diego is another good winning moment um because that one i mean I don't know if I'd say corruption over Shire Wolves. I don't know if that one, that one's over really overshadowed by the Shire Wolves retiring, so that might be a little unfair. I'm trying to think of another good winning moment for a title. Uh, I think yeah. I mean, there's not a whole lot of like really, really super iconic ones, which I think is fine because it makes those other ones just as special. I think Riley beating Roka to reclaim the belt for the second time was pretty cool. Uh, coming out as Karate Kid and all that. I think that was, that was really neat. And then, yeah, I think the other ones... I mean, the other one that's kind of actually surreal is when Harloff beat, beat Merle. Because that was an absolute... Just an atrocity of a singles match. One of the worst we've ever seen. Um... Uh, Leo says here that he was surprised Dan missed Joe Dante uh, directing the Burbs. Yeah, I mean sometimes, every once in a while you're gonna you're gonna run into those those uh, blanks in the brain, and it just happened to catch him on the right day for you know, and he couldn't couldn't hold it. So, but the Roca Merle one ended ends in twenty one to twenty. At one point when. Now here's here's the interesting thing about that win. Roca answered sixty seven percent of his questions. Dan Merle answered seventy two percent. John Roca earned sixty eight percent of his points. Dan Merle answered seventy one percent of his points. Of his available points. The of the the points that are available to them. Dan Merle earned more compared to Roca. He answered, he had a higher accuracy rate compared to Roca, and yet he still lost the match. It's very rare that that we have that happen. There's only been about, I think last I looked, only about 20, maybe 22 matches in which the losing player has a higher accuracy rate. And if I look at the numbers here, I believe that's the this is the only case in which 
in a title match. There might be one more, actually. Um, oh, fun fact here, actually. The Riley McCougan match, they both ended with the same ac- accuracy rate at 58%, which, again, wasn't that good. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Corey says, I'll stop. Remember your best heel turn, your opinion, Ken's turn. Yeah, I think Ken's... Well, actually, I really do like Kalinowski's just because that one, I think, felt really real. With Ken, you knew exactly what was happening. You knew that you know he comes out and it's the reveal and all that. And that's great. And it's heartbreaking because it was betraying Rachel who everybody loves, but the Kalinowski one, I felt like, worked, worked for me better personally, because it, it felt like, it felt pretty real, it felt pretty real to me, and it was actually a great, he had a great couple of scenes that kind of elongated that moment, which, which made it, which made it a lot more uh, interesting and dynamic to watch. Uh, who has a higher XE rate contestants over or under 30? You're asking about people. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't actually have um, a roster with everyone's age uh, ages on it or birthdays on it. So, because if I did, then I could figure out. I could, yeah, do a lot of different things with, with that. I can, let's see here. Eric says, Mike's turn was a slow burn. Yeah, there were, there was like little... Hints here and there that it, that it was coming. I don't think there was that many with Ken because by by the time that something fishy was up, we kind of already figured out that like, all right, this is probably gonna happen pretty soon. With with Mike, you're right. I think it was a slow burn, but when it did happen, I thought I thought that scene was pretty good. You know, between Roxy and M. Gertler, and I had heard some things where some people didn't exactly know what was going on, and Mike you know, was off doing this crazy thing. I think Adam, I mean, he took it pretty hard. It looked believable to me on screen. I know, I think Roxy did a good job of looking bewildered. And, and then and then that scene with Johnny LaQuasto between him and Mike, uh, I thought was another good one. So I thought that, that heel turn was, was it's probably my, I probably liked that one a little bit more than Ken's, just for, just for those reasons. Uh, again, I'll, Looking at this this Rope and Merle match, uh, it was the first time, right, that Merle got dethroned. It was impossible, iconic, iconic moment. But then when you kind of look at the numbers, and this isn't to take away the victory. A win's a win. Um, it's interesting because this was the first time that we kind of saw you can play a pretty – a strategic game here is going to win you win you the match. You know, Roken won three or four in that speed round. Dan only went one of one one of one so to kind of shut him out is what really kind of gave Roka the win here um but I mean it almost didn't happen because Roka misses two in his three or at that time a one a one pointer and uh, his three pointer but hit his five and Dan couldn't hit his five and before that time Dan was winning I, I guess fairly comfortably but it was definitely it was a sound victory on his part um, especially the ones he had against uh, Clark Wolf and and Mark Riley. His one against Mark Ellis, while it didn't seem that strenuous of a victory or a match for Dan Merle, you have to remember that they both went to the five-pointers. They both went three for three in the final round, so Mark Ellis really took Dan Merle to the limit, and and that, and then Roka took him to the limit and finished finished the job. And I got to think that the speed around there really, really helped him out because Dan Merle, you know, he did get a two-point steal in the second round, which can be pretty devastating in any match. But in a title match, it's tough. Roka was able to get a one-point steal to kind of minimize that damage. But the, the speed round, when you look at it more and more, being able to go three or four, I mean, he did lose a point, so he only netted him two to Merle's one. It still was enough obviously, to get the job done. So it's fascinating to know that mathematically, while Merle didn't, wasn't asked as many questions than Roka, Roka was asked 21 and Merle was asked 18. And that's purely due 
the discrepancy is purely due to the speed round. So the speed round can really flip these title matches around on its head. We've seen it time and again, but we really this was the first time we can see uh, how it could be detrimental to even a great player. And up to that time, you know, the greatest player, without a doubt, um, at the time in Dan Merle, that if you're able to take advantage of a speed round or even the betting round in some cases, that you can really erase a deficit in a hurry and put yourself in a position to win. Because after that, uh, let me see here. I think, what was the score? It was 16 to 16. Is that right? That's not right. Uh, yes, it was. So it was tied going into that final round. And Merle, or Roca, couldn't hit his first two. So he has to hit a five to stay in it. And then because of the point structure, Dan Merle has to basically hit all three. Because had we been in that era of the two-pointer, Merle would have got two-pointer for his classics. He got it. Then he hits his three, and he gets it. So now it makes it tied. Which means this match would have went to overtime. That's crazy. That's crazy to think that instead of ending in a victory for John Roca, it could have went into overtime. Now, and then eventually the, the rule was changed or the, the format was decided we we're going to make it a two-pointer instead of a one-pointer. Very, very interesting when you look at it that way. But at the same time, that's, that's not to say that if it was a two-pointer, then, then Roca would have lost. No, it's just interesting how the game's evolved. And maybe they looked at this game or a couple other matches and said, maybe we can make this a two-pointer. But you can't take anything away from here because that's the format that they played. And that's how you approach it, knowing you have a one, a three, and a five. You weren't approaching it as if one day there'll be a two-pointer. You know, you can't approach it like that. So you can't really, you can't, I guess, look back on it that way. Oh, if if only it was a two-pointer. Yes, I mean, you can, but you can't really hold it against the match. You can't hold it against the player, right? So, let's see. No, I see uh, John's in here. Okay. And, Paul, the match is also a big reason, probably the biggest. It went from one to three. Yeah, that's right. And, Eric, those betting and speed rounds are a huge match. I mean, you just look at the most recent IG title matches. Yeah. The speed round and the betting round are just massive or potential for massive swings. It's really incredible, and I think it bothers. It's going to bother one one camp in terms of is it about the knowledge or is it about the strategy? Now, I think the game should be about about both, but I think more weight should be placed on the knowledge because it's called movie trivia, not movie strategy trivia, whatever you know. So it's interesting when there's huge swings because of a betting round or because of a speed round or the combination of both. And I, I, I'd be curious to see what, what, what matches would be like, what outcomes results we would get if we had betting and speed rounds and as a, as the standard, you know, maybe we implement just one of those. Maybe we have four round matches for a regular match and then, Let's say a six-round match for title matches. You know, make it a little bit longer, obviously. So, but this was really the first instance in which if if you're able to dominate in a speed or even a... I mean, the better round was a wash between Merle and Roka. They both betted two. Both got it right. But then, because you're able to really actually play against, like, heads up, you know, quick, you know... Who's got the quicker hand on the buzzer and all that? Uh, really influence influence your match. So that that's one of my absolute favorites, and not just because I'm a big John Roca fan, but I think just because sentimental moment, big reason for looking at the game going forward in terms of how it's formatted and what it meant to have John Roca as the champion at that time. Because yes, Merle was. Everyone regarded him as, like, the greatest. He wasn't really around as much. Like, not like he is today, where he's very involved. Merle wasn't around as much, but John Roca was everywhere. He was really the face of the league, and to have him actually have the belt 
that did. I think that was great for the league. So you can't even. So so for that reason as well, I think it's one of. It just adds to, the, I guess pedigree of that match, in terms of the greatness of that match, and that was really great. Uh, some of the losing performances here that we that we've seen that are just like, what is what do I have to do? What else do I have to do to win this damn thing? Ethan Irwin again, probably just. He had to literally play perfect, yeah, perfect, perfect, to beat Dan Merle. He, I mean, he missed that one question in the first round, so he wasn't able to answer with a bonus like Dan Merle got. Made up some ground in the speed round because he went perfect four for four for the full eight. Dan obviously four for four, just the seven, and was winning by one point. It's it's incredible. Uh, let me look at here at the comments. Who has played in the most title matches, Corey asks. Yeah, it's been Dan Merle. I think I think I counted nine for him uh, with five defenses. And then, let's see, Christian. I disagree with Roka a lot, but his win against Merle is what showed us what this league could be. Absolutely. Absolutely, because his win was the the clash between knowledge and, and, and storyline and character, right? It was that marriage that finally came all together... And he did it by winning that belt. And so you had to pay attention to Roka. He had the belt. He was the man. And all his character work and his knowledge finally merged at that one moment. And that's what makes it such an incredible match. Uh, Eric says, so currently the champs only get one real perk, the choice they have, Spinner's opponent's choice, on the wheel. And some folks want to take that away. Some folks want to take that away. The choice to choose between spinners and opponents. Um, I think as a champion, you should you should have a perk, at least one perk. You've earned it. You know They're challenging you. They're coming to your turf. You should at least have a little bit of an advantage. I, I think if opponent deciding whether or not to have opponents or spinners on the wheel is... I don't think it's that big of a deal because we play like 98% of all the other matches with spinners and opponents on the wheel. That's how we decide who gets to a title match. But if some people feel like, well, now that we've decided, you know, within those parameters, we can't decide who could actually be the champion. So I, I have a little issue there with that. I don't think we should take that away. But definitely leave it up to the champion to decide of if they want to pursue it that way. And so far that's been the case. Corey asks, uh, who do you consider the promo king or queen? <sighs> promo king or queen? Um, I, th- I think the really just the best on the mic has been has been Ken lately, just due to the fact that he's he's been a little bit more visible because of how many people are in corruption and how many matches he's going to have, and especially because of mainly because of Mike just doing everything. So you're going to see more of him by default. I think early on it was John Roca again because he was very visible throughout throughout the league very early on and was doing a lot. I think I think Ben and Andrew, they had some really good stuff as team action. That was some of the best stuff. Uh, I laughed to hardest at some of that. That was really good. In terms of Queens, that's tough because not really, I mean, you look at Rachel wasn't really playing into any kind of character stuff, nor was Clark, but she was still, she could still come out pretty fiery and very uh, certain of herself in those promos. Uh, even when Grace is on the mic, though, those are pretty funny. Like she has more like these quips, especially in the post-match interviews. I thought those were, you know, those are those can be really funny. I think she's really smart in those situations, really quick, and can kind of catch some people, you know, on their toes. And then you I mean you know Brienne and Stacy. I think when they were in a team or even individually, I thought it was pretty good. But nothing, but but none of them were really delving into like these characters the way Ken has or the way Roka has or especially team action guys. I mean, I think when you really dive into the character aspect, that's when you're going to get the best promos because at least if it's not, if it's not true to yourself and you're playing this heightened version, at least we all know you're not an actual dick in real life. Although some could argue that a different way and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Should, Champs get a purse like a thousand dollars. You know, Corey. I think if 
the Schmodown was making that kind of money, that kind of profit, that'd be cool. Uh, I don't see why not. I don't see why not. All right. So, I'm going to talk about the so the most highest scoring match of all time. is really kind of just was with Damarol and Sam Levine. They combined for 49 points. No one has touched that. Since we got close in New York when Dan Merle and Ethan Irwin combined for 48 points, but also when you look at Dan Merle and John Roca in that triple threat, they combined, their two scores combined for 48, so that was close. But nothing every, nothing really comes close to, because the, the, this, the one just outside of it is five points less, and again, it's Merle versus Ellis. They combined for 43. But let's talk about... The worst, the worst title matches we've seen. So, I don't know, uh, people out there watching, how many, uh, what match do you think is the worst? Who has the worst accuracy rate to win the match? I'm curious if anyone knows, but I will tell you that if I can just the the worst combined accuracy rate does not have the worst winning accuracy rate involved. So those are going to be two different things. But So I guess I'll, I'll just say the worst combined accurate match for a title match was between Christian Harloff and Sam Levine. They combined to answer less than 50% of their questions. They only answered 47%. And you can say whatever you want about... Harloff being tired and all that. Sorry. I can't do anything about that. They played the match. It's canon, if you will. It is what it is. So 47%. Harloff answered 28% of his questions. Sam Levine wasn't even wasn't good either. He answered 67%. But that's not the lowest winning winning accuracy rate. In fact, that would it's the fourth. It's the fourth lowest. The lowest is when Dan Merle lost to Christian Harloff. The score was 14 to 13, and Christian Harloff answered 57%. So that means in two title matches, he would answer 57% to win it, and then he would answer 28 to lose it. Incredible. Merle, though, he only answered 45%. The GOAT. He answered 45%. Just an atrocious match. I have... I think I've only watched that match twice. One as just like a fan, and the second time just to record all the stats. Haven't gone back to it since, and I don't plan on it. That was hot garbage. My word. That was that was pretty bad. But then the second lowest accuracy rate to win the match came in 2014 it was the inaugural one mark riley versus josh mcuga mark riley answered 62 percent josh he answered 58 percent seven to six was your final score if you don't count the wagering rounds which i i don't for official stat keeping just so you're aware just because not everyone at that point, they they took care of. Uh, what's it? There's like a few matches where like there's like knockouts between like Riley or Harloff, like TKO somebody or something like that, and they would still do uh, the question just for fun. So I couldn't. So I decided not to. If I was gonna keep track of those questions and make them correct, then I wasn't also gonna do it for just everyone involved. It's a whole thing. I just. But then the third, the third lowest accuracy rate of all time to win a title match happened in 2018 last year, and it was the 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 one that the title was up for grabs between Mark Andreco and William Bibiani. Hard to fathom that a player like Will, William Bibiani could answer 65% of his questions and win a title. In fact, this is actually I think the second is this the second second title match in which the winner has had a lower accuracy rate than the loser. So Bibbs officially answered 64.71. Mark answered 
2-2. However, Bibbs did earn a higher percentage of points relative to him than Andrico relative to Andrico. Let me pull that up, actually, because that's that's a pretty interesting match because, first of all, we haven't had that kind of match since 2014 where it was up for grabs. Now, obviously, McCoug and Riley, you know, that's the inaugural one, so it doesn't really count. But this Bibbs and Drake one was very interesting because we had never been in, in, in that kind of territory before. But again, this is, uh, forget you forget that Andrico, he went, he answered all five of the speed around questions. And he went three of five. He also lost a point prior in round three. They both, they both did. Andrico lost a point. Bibbs lost two points. And between rounds three and four, Bibiani had a two point net loss. Andrico which is a zero. He didn't lose any points. He didn't gain any points. So that, so that gave him, uh, what's the, the lead would have been seven, nine, 13 to nine in favor of Mark and Draco. Yeah. Bibbs was, was up against the wall there, but it was because of like, if, if Andrako was able to capitalize on the two misses, you know, we're talking about a different story. But then once again, it comes down to a five-pointer. And Draco misses his five. Bibiani ultimately hits his five. And it's a, it's a 19-18 victory for Bibbs. The speed rounds are just crazy. Bibbs was asked... He, he, he was asked 17 questions in that match. He answered 11 of them. And Draco, due to the speed round... Had 23 questions asked to him, and he answered 15. But because he lost two points in the speed round, he lost another point in in the third round. It was all for nothing, you know. Eric says uh, the match between Ben and Mike last week, that first round was pretty bad for both of them. Yeah, Qu- pretty shocking to see both of them off their game. I thought, I thought. It, it, yeah, one might be off. I wasn't sure. I was more curious about Mike just because of the whole journey that he's been on. You know, does that start to take a toll? Ben has been squarely f- focusing on this. So, I wasn't as shocked that Ken's was kind of just like, or not Ken, but Kalinowski's first round was just like an average. I was a little bit shocked that Ben's was average as well. You know, I thought... He's got to be cracking seven or eight points just because I know how much work he puts into it and how much you know he wants to achieve those levels. And I know Mike does too, but like I said, my thought process was he's been through a lot and he's going to, you know, he's got a lot going on. So uh, let's take a look at, I think, the other, um, I guess, crazy, crazy match was the Sam Levine Clark Wolf match. Now, everyone, I think, should remember that this is the only match, the only singles title match to go to overtime. It's the only match. And it went to the overtime because they both went 0 for 3 in the final round. That's something else. Um, don't know what to say. I mean, Sam Levine, if you look at it, he missed his last four questions to end regulation he missed his second attempt in the speed round and then he missed all three of his final questions in that in that round five clark had hit three in a row in that speed round though she previously dropped dropped a point in in that war category in this in the in the in the betting round i mean there's like so much to look at this and go, what if? It, it's really mind-boggling. Because Clark was up by a point coming out of round one. But then she couldn't hold the lead, so then it was tied at 13 apiece after the second round. Then Sam got a two, three-point lead after he gained two and Clark lost one. But then Clark stormed back, getting three of the possible five. Sam, he got, the, he got one right in the speed round, but then dropped another one, so that... It's a zero net there. Didn't gain anything. And then 
we get four questions into overtime, and it was the Croods. It's incredible. Incredible. I mean, it's very rare that in a title match, I mean, we've seen player miss two, like, like Roka, right? He missed his one and three-pointer, but hit his five, and that one in the game. Had anyone just hit a two-pointer, that would have won them the title, retained the title right there, or at least it would have retained for Levine, earned it for Clark Wolf. Oh, oh for three for both of them. And it's the Croods that win Levine, an animated movie that wins, that helps him retain. And then we all know after that, he would hang all his belts up. He said, ah, I'm done. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy match. Now, the biggest differential for, let's say, like a knockout or a TKO. Now, we've only, we've had just one knockout scenario, and we've had one, two, three, four, five. We've had six, six title matches decided by TKO. Riley is the only player to record a, a knockout in a title match. He, get a, he did it against JTE, and again, that was the very first defense of a title. Mark Riley won by 17-7, to 7, so that's a 10-point differential. But when you look at everything else aside of that, the other big differential there was between Christian Holoff and Sam Levine. Sam Levine beat Christian by eight points, fifteen to seven. Now a match that didn't end in a TKO or a knockout, with the biggest differential is five points, and that was when Roca beat the Beast William Bibiani by a score of twenty-three to eighteen. Roca answered eighty-two percent of his points. 82% of his questions there, and Bibbs only 76%, and even worse, Bibbs only earned close to 53% of his available points, while Roca earned 82%. So John was very much on point that day. Bibbs, while his accuracy rate wasn't horrible, his, his point potential wasn't there, and it's because of the the betting round he lost two points and he also missed his three and his five so that's eight points plus two that he dropped so that's ten points that just went out the window uh, that he could not capitalize on in any of them so that really hurt his percentage in that regard so but he did storm back in that in that speed round he got four of four of the five which again kind of was starting to turn the tides a little bit because Bibbs was up by one, 16 to 15, going into that final round. And had he kind of weathered that storm in the in the fifth round a little bit better, he might have retained the title. But that's not what happened because these matches always somehow come down to the five-pointer, almost to the point where it's like, why bother with the previous four rounds? Let's just go ahead and answer a five-pointer and uh, everyone can be on their way. You know, because that's what it always comes down to. It's it's pretty interesting, and I don't have the numbers actually. Not that I'm thinking about. It. I should have the numbers in terms of how many five pointers in title matches have been hit, and how many result in uh, in a victory, or uh, even if they did hit it, did they lose? Because another one was hit and they lost. So there's a lot of interesting. Uh, matches and a lot of interesting firsts that happen with these title matches that you wouldn't really expect to happen because when you get to title matches you would expect you know high accurate matches and sometimes you just you get those clunkers and they've been few and far between thankfully because i think we got one two three four five six seven seven times a player has answered under 70 percent and won the match won the title their title match so there's not a whole lot of clunkers. Like I said, we have, we've just had our 20th title match on New York. So it'll be interesting to run through those numbers and ha see how they stack up to, to everything else that's come before it. And there's really not a whole lot more to it to it for this. 
just was thought I'd just run through some of these matches. Um, let's see. Oh, the other thing I was I noticed here is each year we've had five title matches. Now, obviously, the inaugural season 2014 we only had one, but then 2016 we only had four, and that's because the first match didn't drop until like March or late March. Now the season starts in January, like second or third week in January. But so we only had four that year. We had six though in 2017. The the one that kind of sticks out that raises that number would be the cash in. So that that's kind of you could see how you got your six there. Otherwise, it would have been five because last year we had five, and because last year the the cash in went to the team side, not the singles. Um, and this year we still don't know what's going on with that. And one, two, three, four, five. Well, we do, but. Maybe you don't know, but it's out there. Um, but yeah, we had five last year where we just, we've had three. The fourth was played again in New York, and the fifth should be played at Spectacular. Should be. So it looks like we're, 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 you know, five, five, and five. So if you're wondering, like, how consistent we are with the title matches, we're getting about those five, uh, five a year, and uh, that's really cool. So I like that we're kind of getting them almost every other month with some gaps here and there. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of like how it's been how it's been going. So if you haven't seen the live stream uh, from Friday in New York and you, you want to see it early, I don't know if it's still available or not because it's Tuesday, it's going to be Wednesday. But either way, man, you got to, if you did see it, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. If you're waiting until Friday, it's, it's an awesome, awesome match that, that venue was really great. The, the crowd was amazing. So this is this is a huge, huge title match because Paul is the youngest champion, I think, uh, for, well, at least for the singles division, because Chance now has that honor as a champion. Um, he's the youngest, and Jeff Snyder, some a guy who's been been very close to this to the to the singles title area for a lot uh, a lot of his career. Well, about half his career, I think. But he's gone on runs here, and like sometimes it filters out, or he runs runs into a Bibiani situation. But this year, he was in position, and you know he has a tough match ahead of him with Paul. And it was like I said, it was a great atmosphere, and it was it was a lot of fun to be a part of. So if you haven't seen it, and you're gonna wait till Friday, um, I would say stay off the internet. Just don't even don't even watch me. Don't even watch me because I might say it on accident. I won't. But if I did, I wouldn't feel that bad to tell you the truth. All right. I think I think that's gonna it's gonna do it, and uh, I can't think of anything else to say. That's it. Actually, it's really hot in my room. I took the air conditioner out, and now it's biting us in the ass because it's like pretty hot up here. So for that reason and many others, uh, I'm gonna call it quits here on the cheat sheet. I'm still trying to figure this thing out. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And uh, let's see here. Let me look. Let me look at some of these last last minute comments here. Uh, Eric thought that. Oh, I think Ben and Mike were both gonna hit sixty. Yeah, I thought they would have. Uh, is there an old school match you recommend to new viewers? Old school match that I recommend to new viewers would be the Harloff Roka match. That is fantastic. It is. Ultimate Schmodown match, 2016. It's called by Freddie Prinze Jr. and John Campia. It's Ho- Roka. It's the first time he uses the blindfold. Harloff is on his revenge tour of sorts. I think it was at the start of it or maybe right after it. But, you know, it, it was in, in the in the early days of the Shimano, it's still figuring itself out. This is a great match. It's a great match, great finish. And that's one I really like a lot. Yep. All right, Eric. Yep. Good to see you out in New York as well. Everybody else who's in here for a little bit. Thanks for joining in. Uh, and I guess till till next time. That that's. Oh, Franco. Thanks for the hello, Francis Numbertron. I like that Numbertron. I like that. All right. Well. Jesus. 
Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.